And now if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of 2 Peter once again. We are looking at the first chapter of, of 2 Peter. The last time we were together, we, we looked at verses 3 and 4 and how the, the power of the Lord gives us all that we need to live godly lives and transforms us by His glory and excellence. And this, this evening we're going to look at verses 5 through 11 and to see how the calling of the Lord upon our lives is, is transforming. And so if you'd please now give attention to the reading of God's Word. It is completely authoritative. It is completely sufficient. And it is completely inerrant. Second Peter chapter 1 going to begin at verse 3, but focusing on verses 5 through 11. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so short-sighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would teach us from Your word, that You would affect our lives, and that we would be changed by it. This we ask, O Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I have said before, as we've been studying this book of 2 Peter, you all recall who Peter is. He is the, the famous fisherman who was a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was a man of action. As a matter of fact, he was so much a man of action that he often said and did things too quickly and had to backtrack or realize the errors of his ways. And in many ways, Peter and his letters are a good supplement or antidote to us here today in the Reformed faith. Because the Reformed faith tends, in America today especially, to emphasize thinking, doctrine, knowledge, coming to a clarity about positions, understanding fine distinctions. And this is good and proper, especially because so many today could seem to 
care very little about understanding the great truths of God's Word and understanding the distinctions found in it. But at the same time that we understand the truth and the doctrine, we must understand the action that flows from it. And so this evening, as we look at this text, we see Peter's description of faith, and it is an active faith. It is a a calling that comes to us that transforms us and makes us active in our faith. And so briefly this evening, I would like us to look at three aspects of faith in action. First, we will look at a practical faith. And then we will look at a productive faith. And then finally, we will look at a painstaking faith. All of these aspects of faith, as you can see, are strenuous and involve action by the believer. Well, let's begin then by looking at a practical faith. Peter launches right in in verse 5 after he has described the great power of God and the great promises of God that come and that they are enough to change our very beings, to make us partakers of the divine nature. And then he says in verse 5, in very clear and emphatic tones, for this very reason, make every effort. I often wonder if most of the problems in the church today could not be solved by that half of sentence. Because of what God has done, because of who God is, for that very reason, work as hard as you possibly can. Do you see how that defeats two great errors? The first is that says, well, if God has done it, I don't need to do anything. I can just sit on the sidelines. And the second is to say, I'm not sure what God has done. I better get to work. But you see, Peter understands this great biblical paradox that says that we are enabled to work because God has already worked. And that we can be as active as we need to be and as we desire to be precisely because we need nothing. God has provided it all. You see, the reason faith works is because God has worked. And Peter is very, very emphatic. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And I think we understand what it means to make every effort. But this word supplement, I think, can catch us by surprise. I think many of us are familiar with the noun supplement. Many of us take supplements. We think it's a good thing to have some vitamin C or vitamin A to Z or various types of pills that will help us. They're not really necessary, but they're supplements. They will help us along the way. But that's not what the word means here. This word means that we are to be active and we are to add to our faith. We are to put along with our faith these various things. And the word actually comes from the concept of giving richly without regard to price. You know, perhaps you have seen someone walk into a car dealership and say, I'll take that one. Well, what do you want in it, sir? Oh, well, put, put the package on it. Well, you know that'll be... No, I don't really care how much it costs. Just 
Put it on it. That's what I want. The cost doesn't matter to me. You see, that's what Peter wants us to do with respect to our lives. is not to be miserly with our efforts, not to worry if we're going to get a proper return on our investment, but to spend ourselves without regard to the cost. For you see, the irony here is, is that the greater that we work and the more effort that we expend, the more the Lord is able to mold our character in the here and the now. You see, God has promised to make us into the image of Jesus Christ, but He does that in real time through real effort. He doesn't do it ethereally or theoretically. He is right now using situations in your life to make you more like Jesus. It could be heartache. It could be sickness. It could be trials. It could be joys. But He is using the circumstances of your life to make you like Jesus. And we will note that the starting point for all of this is faith. Our faith. Now, Peter does not mean the faith, because we're not adding to God's truth, but he says, you have in real time, with real effort, believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gift of God. And so with that starting point, you are then to continue along the journey as God equips you, as God blesses you, as He is molding you into the image of Christ. Now, I think we can be confused, and I want to dispel one thought here. I don't think what we need to do is say, well, you know, I I can't really, I don't have self-control. You see, I'm still working on my knowledge. And and I've got to get my my virtue in line first so that I can get my knowledge, so that I can get my self-control. So forgive me if I'm completely out of control because I'm somewhere earlier up the chain. But you see, Peter's not doing that. He's not giving us a logical chain or a causal chain. What he is saying is these are all of the things that should be at work in your life. And then he moves from faith to virtue or goodness. This is a word that we saw earlier in this chapter and how he is the, it is the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ that makes us partakers of the divine nature. And this goodness is a description that we are to understand how are we to be the most human we can be. How can we be the best men or women that we can be? And the answer, of course, is by being the most like Jesus that we can. He is the emblem of goodness. And so, therefore, that is what we are to strive for. That is the very pinnacle of the being of man. As our shorter catechism puts it, to worship the Lord and enjoy Him forever. We are to add goodness or virtue to faith and then we are also to add knowledge to our faith. And this is, I think, a knowledge about who Jesus is. This is a different kind of knowledge than we saw earlier in verse 3. It is a different Greek word. There, it was referring to a knowledge that converts, a saving knowledge. This is more of a practical knowledge. More of an understanding that comes from study. More about knowing who Jesus is and what pleases Jesus. And when we know what pleases Jesus, then we know how we are to act. It informs 
our actions. We know not just what is right from wrong, but we also know what is helpful from what is hurtful. What is productive from what is loss. And then we are also to add self-control. Now what does this mean? I think the best way to describe this in summary is that it is moderation in regard to good things. You know what it's like to have just a bit too much of a good thing, don't you? You've had this experience at a restaurant, especially a buffet, where the food is excellent. And you say to yourself, do I really need that extra piece of pie? Yes, I do. And then you eat it because it was wonderful. And then about 30 minutes later you say, I really didn't need that extra piece of pie. I'm paying for that now. You see, the Lord gives us good things. But because we have a tendency to hoard and we have a tendency to be afraid He will stop giving us good things, we try and grab whatever we can get, as much as we can get, as quickly as we can get. Self-control says no. We need to be willing to submit to Jesus in His timing and His order. And we'll see later that this is a mark of false teachers to not have self-control, to not trust the Lord, to want to be grasping at all times. Peter then says we are also to add steadfastness. And if self-control is to be moderate in things that are good, steadfastness is the opposite, as it were. It is a willingness to put up with tough times. It is a willingness to understand the promise of better things in the future. And it is a trusting in the Lord to intervene into our lives so we don't give up, we persevere on, not because it's our only option, but because we know the Lord is faithful. Steadfastness, and then godliness. We've seen this word before as well in verse 3. The divine power has been given to grant to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And godliness, I think, would be best described as a very practical awareness of God that touches every aspect of our lives. So everything that we do, we do before the face of God, as it were. Coram Deo. We do everything we do knowing the Lord is there. Our marriage is lived knowing God is present. Our parenting is lived knowing God is present. We work at the job knowing God is present. Godliness permeates all of our being. And then the final two we have are brotherly affection and love. And this is the crown attribute of the Christian life. Brotherly affection, it's very interesting that outside of the Bible, this word, you know it well, there's a city named after it, Philadelphia. Outside of the Bible, it only occurs in the context of the family. Only in the Bible do you have brotherly affection or love for people beyond your family unit. And you see, obviously, what is Peter is saying here is that our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ really are brothers and sisters. It's not just a title. And love. The chief of all virtues. The gift of God. 
who is himself love. This is a very practical faith that we live out. But this faith is not only practical, it is also productive. And Peter tells us this in two ways, in an encouragement and in a warning. He says in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is there is a real change that has occurred in your life if you believe in the Lord Jesus. And if those qualities aren't there, then you need to take stock of your life. Now, they don't need to be perfect. You don't need to have perfect self-control, perfect steadfastness, but these qualities should be evident and you should be building upon them. And if you do, then this kind of true knowledge keeps you active. It keeps you from laziness because we know Jesus is coming back and we know that we must produce an effort that brings forth fruit. We don't want to be ineffective, do we? We want to be effective for Christ. We don't want to be unfruitful. We want to be fruitful with our lives. Peter says you should be encouraged. If these attributes are found in your life, cultivate them and God will make you fruitful and effective. Then there's a warning in verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so short-sighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And he says, if these things aren't in your life, you need to be careful. If you hate self-control, if you hate godliness, if you don't know what it means to have brotherly affection for others, if you don't want to make any effort to bring about knowledge and steadfastness in your life, then there is a spiritual sickness in your life and eventually you will not be able to fake it anymore. He says it will show up in every aspect of how you think. And he gives us three examples that I think correlate to our past, our present, and our future. First, he says that you are so short-sighted that you are blind. And it's interesting here. If we are blind, then we cannot see it all. Then we don't know what is going on around us. We are oblivious to our here and our now and the effect that we have on other people. And if we are short-sighted or near-sighted, we can't see what is ahead, can we? Some of you, I think perhaps, are like me. You are nearsighted. If you get, oh, about two inches from me, I can't see. I have that bad of nearsightedness. And it's horrible because things could be going on out there and you have no idea. You can't see. You can't tell. But what Peter says is, how much worse is it to be spiritually nearsighted or shortsighted? We don't know what the future will bring. We think we are independent of God because everything beyond our immediate sphere of influence is vague and fuzzy. But it also affects our past too, isn't it? That we become forgetful. We have forgotten that we are cleansed from former sins. We have a kind of spiritual amnesia. We don't remember what's behind us. We don't remember what God has done. And that makes us far more susceptible to the devil's wiles. You see, if we are not actively cultivating our faith, 
We come to a spot where we don't understand our past sins, we don't think about our present rebellion, and we do not think about the future condemnation that waits for those who have not trusted in Christ. Thirdly and finally, this faith, Peter says, must be painstaking. It must be an effort. Look here at verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. And what he says is you need to make every possible effort you can. Again here, Peter is being very practical. We must be diligent, Peter says. We must be eager. You see, I think if we hear the word diligent, we think we must check all the boxes. We must make sure we double-check our work. And we think about the Christian life like taking a math exam. You know what your teacher or your tutor or your parents always said to you? If you finish the exam, go back and check your work. Go back through it. You might have made an error that led you astray. That's not what Peter's saying here. He's not saying merely be diligent in the sense of double-checking. He's saying be eager This is the kind of eagerness that gets us up in the morning when there is something exciting in the day. It gets us rushing down when we're called for dinner because we know the meal that is prepared for us. We are eager to undertake this effort. And it's not abstract at all. And so what he says is, if we do this, we will make our calling and election sure. We will make it certain, confirm it in our lives. We will show it and verify it for ourselves. This is not about earning our salvation. It's not about doing work so that we are called. It's not about doing things so we are elected. What it is, is it is verifying and showing to ourselves that we might have confidence that we are ones who have been chosen by Christ and we are ones who have been called by Christ. And then, really, at the bottom line, we have to ask ourselves, will we make choices that are costly? on the basis of our faith. Are we willing to do that? It's a hard word, but you need to hear this. Anyone is willing to make a no-cost faith decision. Anyone might be willing to wave a hand and say, well, I suppose I could believe in Jesus if that works out. But when the chips are down, Everything is on the line. And what you so are striving to do and you know it will cost, are you willing to make the choice for Jesus? Because you see, only one who is called, only one who is elected, only one who knows the divine power and faith can make those kind of costly choices for Christ. And then finally we see that Peter tells us that there is an eternal difference that comes with this painstaking effort. You see in verse 11 he says, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says, You will never fall 
And there will be a rich entrance provided for you. It's very strong. No, never, you will never fall. There is no reverse to what God has given to you. And the kingdom will come to you and you will receive it. It is provided for you. We have this rich entrance without cost because Jesus, as the hymn says, paid it all. This is why we have this rich entrance into the kingdom of God where God lavishes upon us all that we need. And then at the end, we have exactly what we want. Because deep down, in the core of our being, at the center of our soul, what we really want is Jesus. And He comes to us. And He lavishes His gifts upon us. And this is what makes us perfect. And all of our efforts then we see are the work of Christ in us. So I want to encourage you this week to exercise your faith. To work as hard as you possibly can knowing that Jesus is at work in you. Let's pray.